talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is 900 CHML, and welcome to Hamilton Today. Ted Michaels for the final day today. Filling in for Scott Thompson. I don't even know who's in tomorrow. Is Radley in tomorrow? Is Scott Thompson? I have no idea. I should probably check the schedule. I don't know. But somebody will be here tomorrow, not me. So whatever. Anyway, uh, coming up on uh, the program today, coming up a little bit later on um, from now, just after 3.30 this afternoon, I would hope that by now you've heard about uh, the special concert that we are doing for mental health of. Uh, fundraising mental health awareness called the long road back september 28th uh, at the burlington performing arts center um spent a lot of time on that i'll be hosting the program and um kind of sharing my story about uh, anxiety before our uh, featured acts uh, take the stage and so we have a little bit of information about covid and mental health and then we we party but there is somebody that'll be joining i'm not going to give it away who who it is yet but there is somebody joining us on that show that night um if you want to go back yeah you can call it a blast from the past i guess but basically somebody who uh people will remember I would think, and then they think, whatever happened to that person? Well, that person was uh, really tied in with the career of the Spoons, and when you hear it, you'll find out why. So uh, that special guest comes up just after the 3.30 news this afternoon. Also coming up later on in the program today, we're going to be talking on two fronts about uh, candidates that are um, running for election one of whom had a really close call this past weekend um, driving or riding her bike down a major road in Hamilton, uh, was hit by a car, clipped by a car. Good thing she's okay, but she wants to tell her story, so that'll happen. And also, um, what about the accessibility issues for people that uh, can't, Walk, somebody who uh, is a familiar name to listeners here on CHML. Anthony Frazina is a candidate for Ward 8, and uh, he has uh, some concerns. We're going to ask him what it's like campaigning when you're basically in a wheelchair and can't walk from door to door. So that poses a whole different uh, light on the subject of being a political candidate. We'll have more on that after uh, 4 o'clock this afternoon. Well... They did it again. Protests continued in Ottawa over the weekend. Uh, perhaps you didn't hear about it, but uh, are things now meaning that that situation with people visiting in Ottawa is now going to be uh, the norm? Uh, Ottawa police towed 12 vehicles during the protest and convoys last weekend. And from what I understand, one of the things that they did is they draped an American flag on the um, tomb the unknown soldier which is in the you know the national memorial uh, here in canada so it just continues so is that the norm also um, we'll find out coming up a little bit later on hockey canada releasing a statement today with their plan for how to fix things yet another statement after all the stuff that we told you about last week and is being met with skepticism to say the least also. And of course, the Pope is now in Canada. He has issued a statement today that he has asked for forgiveness um, and all the things that are going on with that um, very, very emotional story in 
Western Canada. As a matter of fact, it's uh, all of Canada. There was applause today as he said that he's deeply sorry for the actions of many members of the Catholic Church in the residential school system. He asked their forgiveness in particular for ways in which members of the church cooperate in what he calls projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation. He said the overall effects were linked to the residential schools were catastrophic. So he's issued his apology. Is that going to be enough? Well, we'll see what happens. By the way, the daily Twitter poll uh, has to do with this. Today's Twitter poll at AM 900 CHML, you still have time to vote. Does the Roman Catholic Church need to do more than offer an apology for its role in Canada's residential school system? Yes or no? AM 900 CHML, the Twitter page. Friday's Twitter page uh, question was interesting. With a third of the CFL season in the books, do you think the 1-5 in five Tiger Cats will make the playoffs? Well... 27% said yes, 73% said no. And of course, yet another key ball game coming up Thursday night when they take on the Montreal Alouettes. Argos yesterday beat Saskatchewan. It should not have been that close. They should have blown out the Riders with a starting quarterback. However, they still got the points, so they're now four points up. They're 3-2, and two, the Argos are, and the Tiger Cats are 1-5. So yet another huge game for the Tiger Cats coming up. Uh, Thursday night at uh, Tim Hortons Field, and we will have a chance to give you a pair of tickets to go to that game. Not now, but when you hear that song, you'll be able to call us and uh, uh, get the tickets. So that's a lot of what's going on today. Uh, it's been a, a busy weekend. Uh, don't know if you're a track and field fan, but watching Canada win gold at the World Track and Field Championships in Eugene, Oregon, the way that Andre de Grasse put it into high gear with the U.S., absolutely incredible uh he ran it in about eight seconds now that's from a standing start but still visualize a cfl field start at one goal line and then end at the 10 yard line the the other 10 yards so that's 100 yards you know what he did that in eight point something seconds just visualize that's absolutely incredible so uh congratulations to them that is just a really really uh neat thing to do especially when they beat the u.s on their home soil as well <clears throat> take that nbc well you talk about safe roads in the city of hamilton and you talk about uh politicians talking about how things have to be cleaned up and how the roads are becoming unsafe well somebody running for council in ward four got a first-hand impression the other day of just how dangerous the streets can be pascal marchand is that councillor for ward four which is my ward i just thought i'd throw that in just for no particular reason <laughs> and pascal joins us on hamilton today first of all thank you for joining us how are you hi thank you so much for having me so let's talk about what happened to you you were um riding your bike in a pretty uh well tra uh, well trafficked area so to speak a really mm -hmm. busy part of the city tell us what happened Right. So it was Friday night and I was out with my nephew. He's visiting from New Brunswick and I wanted to take him around town to show him everything that Hamilton has to offer. So we were checking out Concrete Canvas and then we were going to eventually make our way to the uh, Dusk Dance down by Bayfront. And I got rid of my car in 2020. So the bicycle is my mode of transportation. So I slapped a helmet on his head and off we went. And uh, well, we all saw the footage. So... 
Now, what had happened is you were in the uh, you're on John Street, uh, going mm-hmm. north, approaching the John Augusta intersection. So basically, that is just past the underpass, if you will, and you were mm-hmm. on the right hand side. And a motorist um, basically uh, wasn't look well. I, I shouldn't speculate, but the the driver uh, driving a blue sedan hit you, knocking you into the other cyclist. First of all, I hope you're okay, and the other person, your nephew, as well. Right. Yeah. So what ended up happening is that um, when you're coming from the east end and you are trying to make your way west, uh, because we were checking out Concrete Canvas and where the murals were, we actually were popping out on Young Street. So we just had about two, three blocks to go on John Street just to pick up the uh, bike trail or the bike uh, path on Hunter Street. And that's what we were trying to do. But unfortunately, that particular stretch of John Street, the lanes are very narrow. So what was actually happening is that as soon as the light turned green, there were no cars behind us when we entered the intersection. And so as we entered the intersection at the same time as the city truck uh, next to us, I checked behind me uh, because I was going to take the lane, which is a safety precaution that we do as cyclists to prevent cars from trying to pass us when we're in an unsafe environment like we were. And I wanted to try and protect my nephew because he's only 14 years old. He's right behind me. I want to make sure that he doesn't get clipped. But what you see is that I look behind me and then I make a double take because I can't believe what's happening behind me. This driver is accelerating. And so what you see in the video, you see that there's no one behind us. And all of a sudden, this car comes out from behind us and decides it's going to try and squeeze itself between two cyclists and the city truck on a very narrow lane. Wow. And so had I been two inches to the left, I don't even want to think about it. I don't even know how I could have explained that to my brother. I don't know how I could have explained that to my brother. Now, uh, what happened afterwards? Uh, You got clipped, as we say. Uh, Did the Mm -hmm. driver slow down? Did the driver stop the look? Or did the driver just keep going? Well, yeah. So what ended up happening is that as I saw this driver approaching, um, I I ducked out of the way. So I made contact with the sidewalk, and and then the car zoomed past us. It kept going. It didn't stop. And then my nephew then hit me because I hit the sidewalk. So he hit me because I came to a stop in the middle of the road. And then there's a huge line of cars behind us. Here we are, just two pedestrians, just our bodies, and all these cars around us moving about and just trying to get out of the way. It was pretty frightening. It was pretty frightening. I can understand that. Now, uh, obviously talking with with Hamilton Police, uh, do we have any more information? And by the way, the video is all over social media. But uh, have you heard Mm -hmm. anything recently from police about possibly laying charges, at least finding out who this individual driving the car is and what happened? No. So I called the uh, police traffic uh, line on on the weekend um, and... You give them a description of the location, the time, the type of car, the license plate, etc., and you just leave it on a voicemail. And they say that they'll send them a letter if the plates match the description of the car. And so, no, I haven't heard back from the police, even though I did give them my number to give me a call back because I said we do have footage of what happened. And, you know, uh, one of the things, um, and I'm not going to... uh, presume here what what your platform is in running for ward four but might you know it's kind of ironic actually if you think of it uh, might Mm -hmm. one of the things that you be talking about is the unsafe roads in the city of hamilton going forward 
Right, yeah. So the healthy neighborhood pillar of my platform really does revolve around the built environment and how the infrastructure in a city is set up to make it so that people can get around safely and just move their bodies in a way that keeps them healthy, right? So in this situation, yeah, Complete Streets is definitely on the menu. Um, There have been studies done on how to do this. We're not reinventing the wheel. Um, So this can be done, and it needs to be done. So I do definitely hats off to Councillor Wilson for making her motion back in May. Um, I hope that we can make change happen, but we also need to be held accountable as city councillors, well, hopefully city councillors, to make sure that it it really does happen. The political will needs to be here for this. This is serious. Now, as you mentioned, you were going down John Street. You were trying to get to the bike lanes, not that that far away. Um, Mm -hmm. But we should point out as well, as you've indicated and you can see on the video, you you followed all the rules of the road. Mm -hmm. You had your helmets, you had your bike Mm -hmm. lights, you had your bike Mm -hmm. pals. You were following the rules of the road. Obviously, Mm -hmm. then that's... uh, Whatever happened uh, or could have happened is obviously a very upsetting, but the fact that you were following and doing what you were uh, told to be do, um, then um, obviously that's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I've been riding around Hamilton for, for ages, for over 20 years, even before we had bike lanes. Um, I used to have to ride all the way down to Wild Waterworks, and there were definitely no bike lanes from the... Uh, Nash Road all the way to uh, Confederation Park. Um, But I do have to say that uh, I do find that most cyclists in the city of Hamilton, and obviously you can't paint everyone with a brush, with the same uh, stroke of a brush. Right. But uh, cyclists, from the ones that I've spoken with, we all ride with a certain level of fear and precaution, and we ride defensively because the reason I was looking over my shoulder is because I have to look over my shoulder. And we all have to look over her shoulder. So we give each other tips and tricks on which areas are the safest to get across. Like, for example, to get from Ward 4 to Ward 5, you have to cross the Red Hill Parkway. Yep. But where do you do that safely? <laughs> Good question. There is no way. Yeah, I know. There is no way. Well, Pascal Barchand, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad your nephew's okay. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a very frightening situation, and, and hopefully oh, sure. police can get at least a little bit to the bottom of this. Uh, thanks very mm-hmm. much for joining us. Uh, glad you're okay, and uh, try to enjoy the rest of the day. Absolutely. Much appreciated. Thank you. There you go. There's uh, what happened to uh, one of the candidates for Ward 4. Very close uh, situation involving a car. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today in stereo, this is the nation's music station, Much Music. Ah, yes, we're going back old school because that's what I love to do. Joining us on Hamilton Today on 900 CHML. Well, first of all, let's go back a little bit. The Spoons are joining us on stage at the Burlington Performing Arts Center September the 28th for The Long Road Back, a fundraiser for CMHA Halton. Now, our next guest, I don't want to date him, but... You know, he was the guy who broke the spoons initially on Much Music, the first person to ever play a song by the spoons. So we thought to ourselves, since, you know, we're kind of going back, let's bring him back for September the 28th. So joining us then and joining us now, the familiar voice of Much Music, Mr. Michael Williams. First of all, sir, happy birthday. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. You know, um, 
I, when I was younger, I <laughs> never ever dreamed of being older. And now that I'm older, I feel like I'm younger. And there's so many things to do still, and I'm having a great time. I just came back from out west where I visited one of my best friends in the world, uh, uh, announcer that I worked with in Montreal at the legendary Shome FM. Yep. And back in those days, that's where I came in contact with the Spoons in Montreal. Pat Prevo and Carl Radel, who is the bass player from Martha and the Muffins, and... Um, they were managing the spoons at that time. And I happened to be over Pat's place and she had worked at ANA and, you know, always just trying to get closer to music and learn more about Canadian music and uh, from all over the country. And I believe uh, Shom FM was, they were big spoons fans, yep. Montreal. They're all big spoons fans. And as the band began to come to Montreal, um, I uh, I began to hang out with them a bit and uh, go to see them. And I, I just love them. At the Spectrum, they were incredible. Back in the days of much music, we did the Spoons live from the Spectrum, and I got to host that. And uh, I just did a thing with Gord last night. Uh, we did a friend's wedding. And, uh, you know, he's just a wonderful player. The band has just always been great with great players. And uh, Sandy and Gord have been together for the life of the band. Some of the other players have changed, but they also come back. And we're sort of in, I believe, their, like, you know, 40th anniversary yep. or something. They've yep. been together that long. And the 40th anniversary is a little touch and go because... It really happened during the pandemic, but I think it's going to go till they get it done. <laughs> you know, and they, they play every hoot and holler in Canada yep. and say thank you. Their last album was just beautiful. Uh, in his spare time, Gord plays with a flock of seagulls. Yep. And Sandy has a project with her partner. And it's, uh, it's all going along wonderfully. And live... Um, they were doing the Grand Hall in Toronto, and I said to Gord, I said, hey, man, I'll come out and just DJ for the... you have an opening act? No, let me be your opening act. Ha! I'll come out and DJ and say hello and just do, like, a live radio show type thing and then host your show and introduce and bring off the band and do the encores and all that stuff. Sure, you know, go and, you know, you just go and have a good time. I don't care about money. Let me just have a good time. Right. And I went down and got a standing ovation for my opening set. So I was so elated and happy. I'm kind of their official, unofficial opening group where we can <laughs> pull those things together. And uh, I just love them to death. They're just uh, quite indicative of what a great Canadian band uh, is could be if you're starting a band this is a success you could have and to be together for 40 years doing anything yep as a, a job and you know in music everyone thinks our job is fun and it really is um you know is just uh it's just wonderful you know it's sort of that if you can keep your sanity while all others are losing their yep. theirs <laughs> you can inherit the win but keeping your sanity is what this thing is about on the 28th and uh, let's talk about that, man. The spoons are going to be there, and I'm real. Thank you for getting me there, you and Sandy Graham. I'm really looking forward to it. But, um, 
you know, I did a piece with CTV because I do commentary for them. Yep. And uh, I did a piece on uh, Naomi Judd. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to my mom, as a matter of fact. And uh, everyone wants their mom's approval. And she loved it. And I kind of looked at it and I felt so good about it because I felt Winona could have watched that and really uh, been okay with it, you know? Right. And uh, we all know, I think we all know of the story of uh, Naomi Judd about now. Everyone's pretty much heard of it. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what your event is. Uh, that's what that event's going to be about. Well, I was going to say, Michael, obviously all of us have gone through COVID uh, in one stage or another. And I always say, you know what, if somebody says to me that they weren't affected mentally at all in some form, anxiety or depression or whatever, because of COVID, I'm going to respectfully say that they're not really being truthful. Um, I'm so glad that you get a chance to be there that night. we got a special VIP reception. We have a contest coming up on online contests, which we will be announcing in the next few minutes. But uh, having you there and, you know, getting up on stage and introducing the Spoons, it's you know, it's going to be a great night. It's a beautiful venue to start, the Burlington Performing oh. Arts Center. And I can't wait to actually yeah. stand, stand on that place and work with you. Yeah, I mean, I went to see... Um I went to see the annual Christmas show uh, there uh, a couple of years ago with a friend. I love the room. You know, I just love the feel of the room. I love the sound of the room, the size of the room. It's of all of those rooms I've been to, that's my favorite. So, and I've never been on the stage, so I'm I'm really kind of looking forward to it. Uh, there is uh, a lot of things going on that night. Yep. Um, tell me what's going on that night. Well, we have, uh, as we mentioned, we have a contest. We have a special VIP reception for uh, involving people in the contest, which you will be at and you will speak at as well. There's a lot of things I got to tell you about actually, but uh, the the main part is this: it's the long road back, and we're calling it because we're all coming back from our battle with COVID and with uh, mental health issues and what have you. Uh, very quickly, um, you know, uh, just talk about your own situation, how how COVID affected your mental health, because I'm sure, as I say, it did as well. Well, you know, I've been in music uh, ever since I was a kid. I sort of joke with people and they say, well, what do you do? I say, I am music, uh. you know, and then if they don't know what that means, then I really am quite hesitant to explain it. Yep. But uh, I've been in and around music for such a long time and I've seen sanity and I've seen insanity, you know, and uh, I know that with music, um, you have to go into those dark, lonely places sometimes to pull out the gym yep. and the truths and other things and the hits. And sometimes, uh, like Naomi Judd, you go to those places and you get that work done and maybe you don't know how to get out of that room. That right. You had to go into to do that. That's, that's my analogy for right. it. For okay. myself, uh, when I've done some of the greatest things, I've been alone because I didn't have family here in Toronto, right? And uh, um, so I've been alone at some of those moments. And uh, it's just sort of a thing. So I'm very used to being, you know, alone and biding my time and playing with machines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I did a show during the pandemic with uh, two friends, one Vinks, who co-wrote the song Akuna Matata. 
for Disney, and we did a show live from France uh, that was, uh, you know, just something that we did for it. He's still doing it now. Yep. And uh, it was just something to keep us busy during the pandemic. And yep. then I did another show, Isolation Island, and that's really what all of that was about. All right, we Michael, uh, that. Michael, yeah. you understand being in the uh, media, you understand time. Oh, there's time. time. Yeah, there's time. <laughs> there's time. So, so there's commercials. Yes, there are. So uh, thank you for that. Again, you will be joining okay. us on stage to welcome the Spoons on September the 28th. Nobody better to do it than the guy that broke them uh, in initially on Much Music several years ago. Michael Williams, look forward to seeing you on the 28th, sir. Stay healthy. Thank you very much. You take good care, and I'm looking forward to being there. All right, there you have it. Michael Williams. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. Well, monkeypox has been declared a global health emergency by the WHO, but doesn't mean we're all in for another COVID-like situation. This is a disease that we already know about, and it transmits in different ways. So uh, what's going to happen? Well, joining us, uh, we talked to him last week, and things are changing, obviously. Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metro University, Thomas Tenke, joins us. Uh, Thomas, thanks again for joining us. Happy Monday. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Ted. Thanks very much. So let's uh, talk now, uh, first of all, let's talk about monkeypox, because when it first came out, we saw the pictures, and it looked like you know a really nasty case of smallpox or something like that with bumps and, and what uh, things like that. Kind of take us back a little bit and talk, first of all, about what this disease is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's it is similar to smallpox uh, in that uh, you know the most distinguishing feature is this uh, painful rash that uh, eventually turns into uh, sort of a, a blister, then and then they in scabs, and then the scabs fall off, and so so that's really the you know the sort of re- reasonably horrific picture of someone who's you know infected. Uh, there there are other symptoms such as fevers, chills. Headaches, uh, you know, swollen nymph loads and, and the like. Uh, it has, you know, traditionally it's it's a it's a infection that's that's confined to Central and West Africa, and so so that's what's unusual until sort of around May this year. It was really con- constrained to that part of the world, and we hadn't really seen spreading outside of there. And so, uh, you know, that and so that's what sort of really caused people to sort of take a look at this and sort of wonder what's going on is that really the spread outside of the the areas that it normally normally is in and so so um you know and that that combined with you know the what you know the the visual images you can see of people who are who are infected uh obviously it's uh you know for someone who gets infected it's a very very painful but uh outside of africa so far there there haven't been any deaths reported uh but uh and i think it's up to you know 680 odd cases in canada so far well i know that uh the information we have is that the average person uh average age of a person affected across this province is 36 okay let's call it 37 so 37 it's 36.8 but we're you know a couple of months (laughs) here there so let's say 37 years of age nine people are being treated in hospital no deaths have been reported Reported. So yes, it sounds scary, uh, but uh, does that uh, does that age group of thirty seven stand out to you at all, or is that just basically um, this is what it is? Yeah. So what what they're reporting uh, 
from the the WHO are reporting is that that uh, predominantly it's uh, happening in men and uh, men who are having sex with men, and so it's really very much a, a, a an infection associated with intimate contact, and uh, you know, and and uh, and so so what you're describing is, is uh, you know sounds you know fits fits what you know what what uh, the WHO is saying is is happening in you know around the world in in countries outside of Africa. So um, I know that uh, this is uh, not like uh, we say, not like COVID or what have you, but if people are concerned about, um, you know, protecting themselves, if you will, from monkeypox, it's been declared a global health emergency. Uh, There's no real um, shot for this yet. So what can people be doing to kind of uh, ease their minds? Not that they're, you know, calm down at all with what's been happening with COVID. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, what you've got to look at is, you know, what is the, who, who is primarily uh, becoming infected? And, and as I said, it's, it's uh, primarily men uh, who are having intimate contact with other men. Mm-hmm. And so, so really, if you're outside of that group, I don't think you should be, uh, you know, too worried about it at all. Uh, and because it's really that intimate contact and it's very close contact. So, uh, you know, what that means is that, you know, if you're in that, in that, uh, in that group, that, you know, I think you need to be be cautious and and uh, and moderating the, the the contact you might have with uh, other you know other partners. So so they're saying that it's uh, associated with more frequent partners. Uh, uh, and so then also if you are starting to show some symptoms, the the recommendation is to to self isolate and get tested and then start the uh, treatment regime. And but at this stage, the the treatment is not as not uh, even though there is a vaccine, there doesn't seem to be wanting to use that too too quickly yet. It's more about uh, individual treatment uh, through through isolation and, and uh, you know pain management. And, and and because it's a really a self limiting condition, you know, what, if someone's self isolating and uh, you know they're they're really not a not a uh, you know a threat to other people, they're not you know it won't be able to transmit it. And so so it's really that sort of locking down people as in sort of controlling potentially infectious people uh within a a particular particular grouping uh and and uh you know and saying well you know who really those people who are highest risk and and that that again is uh at this stage men uh you know who have intimate contact with other men and so so we're just you know i think you know from the broader general community perspective we, we we have to be cautious. We have to be mindful of it, but we do, we don't have to really be concerned. I think the over you know the the reason why the WHO have called it as a public health emergency is really it's about helping the you know helping uh, having you know in, uh, improving cooperation and coordination at an international level, and it sort of opens up additional funding streams to allow for for better better control and, okay. and surveillance. Thomas Henkate from uh, the Toronto Metropolitan University, thanks for the update about monkeypox. Have yourself a great uh, day for what's left of it. <laughs> thanks very much, Ted. All right. A scary incident for uh, a person running for Ward 4 Council, riding on her bike, getting clipped by a car that didn't stop. Could have been far worse. Well, another candidate running in the upcoming municipal election uh, has a platform that strongly emphasizes the often forgotten issues of accessibility. And since he is using a wheelchair, does that, uh, 
change the way you traditionally campaign? Uh, joining us to talk about that is the candidate in Ward 8, Anthony Frazina, joins us on 900CHML. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Ted. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so let's uh, talk about this, first of all. Actually, let's go back before we start talking about some of the issues. I'm always fascinated and applaud because I've made it known that I have no desire to do this. I'm applauding the fact that you put your hat in the ring, so to speak, to run for Ward 8 Council, uh, for City Council uh, representing Ward 8. The question, and I guess it's maybe multi-layered, what made you decide to do it? Uh, well, for me, Ted, uh, deciding to do it was uh, a decision that didn't come easy. I've always been an advocate uh, in the community uh, for many, many years of diversity and inclusion. And, and I think putting my hat and my name in the race will help bring that representation that is often missed and overlooked and overshadowed to the table to hopefully cultivate uh, the fundamental systemic and culture changes that are, that are needed. In Hamilton, the percentage of persons with disabilities is actually greater than the provincial and national averages. So having that authentic and genuine representation, uh, in my eyes, uh, would help bring those issues that people with disabilities face uh, more prevalent. So now let's talk about this. As we say, um, people come door to door during an election campaign, whether it's a civic election or provincial or, or federal, uh, and uh, using a wheelchair, obviously, it's tough going door to door. So I don't, don't like to use this term, Anthony, just because everybody's been using it for two and a half years. But how have you pivoted now when you decided to run to think to yourself, OK, this, is, this could become problematic, and here's how I'm going to solve that issue. What have you done, and how are you running your campaign? Well, certainly, Ted. Uh, thank you. Uh, I've done a lot of social media work. I've had a lot of people uh, within the community, within uh, certain pockets of the ward, become allies and in unionship with me to help advocate the message and support doing things like virtual coffees as well. And, and just continuing to be innovative uh, in terms of getting my message across and getting the, the platform out there of the diversity inclusion revolution. Now, I understand that you are uh, doing things like uh, holding a public meet and greet. Um, any idea of the response that that may, may have for you uh, on, on Thursday night? Uh, well, the community has come out in, in droves to support uh, my campaign and me over the years. Uh, I've had a, uh, a longstanding relationship with the community in terms of uh, accessibility and inclusion. Uh, as being a member of the Advisory Committee for Persons with Disabilities, uh, the Ontario Disability Coalition, uh, the Accessibility Advisor for the Hamilton uh, bid for the Commonwealth Games. Uh, that, that message continues to, to be out there, and that message continues to uh, set the precedence for what we're currently doing now in our, our campaign. Uh, when you talk to people, and you've been talking to people because uh, you live, of course, in that ward, and, and you've talked to them um, on and off for, for years, um, I know you're talking about the, the accessibility issue, which is huge. Is there one other or several other issues that you keep hearing? Uh, because, of course, sometimes uh, different wards have different problematic uh, things. Ward 8 could be different, obviously, than Ward 2. When you're running for Ward 8 Council um, and you talk to people, Aside from the accessibility thing that is a key component of your campaign, what is the other big or several big issues that you're hearing uh, when you talk to people? Well, certainly I'm hearing a lot of pedestrian and roadway safety, more accessible and public washrooms and 
in public spaces and buildings, affordable and accessible housing, uh, increase to mental health programs, budgetary accountability that meets the needs of the community, uh, increase in uh, the HSR and darts and public and paratransit systems, as well as cabs. So many of those conversations I'm having with uh, uh, citizens in the ward, and we are putting that message out there as part of the campaign that we are currently running. Do you hear a lot about, uh, you know, it's time for a change with a lot of uh, politicians. Uh, it could be, uh, as, as we've noticed, Anthony, in the last little while, uh, I guess the term we can use, it's become rather acerbic with councillors taking shots at each other and and uh, councillors that maybe aren't, uh, aren't quite... Uh, shall we say, nice to their constituents and people that call. Uh, are you hearing a lot about that as well? I, I certainly am hearing about that. Uh, I'm more concerned, uh, Ted, with what myself and my campaign team are doing. Uh, you know, I intend to be accountable, available, accessible, and transparent throughout the course of the campaign and in hopes that uh, if elected to Ward 8, that I will bring those um, qualities and characteristics to the community that has really embraced me uh, as a as a Ward 8 resident and as a Hamiltonian. So it's really a semblance of gratitude and, and thanks for for allowing me to be the person that I am. And this is my way uh, in, in one way of, of giving back to the community that has given me this opportunity. All right, and we'll keep an eye on it, of course, because the election is coming up uh, in October. It's not that far away. Anthony Brzezina, candidate for Ward 8, talking about uh, some of the difficulties and the problems posed when you can't go door-to-door on the campaign. And I know that your campaign manager deals with a lot of uh, things as well, so she can also relate as well, maybe get her on the program at uh, some other time to let her tell her, her story. Thanks very much for this. Good luck on the campaign hustings. Thank you so much. So there you have the story from Anthony Frizzini, candidate for Ward 8, and his campaign manager is also uh, talking about um, problems when you have uh, kids that she does uh, that have neurological problems, autism and Asperger's, and you know, just basically talking about how tough it is uh, on the campaign trail when you're facing issues like that. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us uh, to talk for the next few minutes is is somebody who we've talked to a lot in the last little while because what I missed it, what happened in Ottawa over the weekend, 103 tickets, 12 vehicles were told during a day of protests and convoys on Saturday in Ottawa, and police also implemented rolling road closures. So my question is, first of all, our guest is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting uh, and a former CSIS analyst. Phil Gursky joins us. For Phil, first of all, thank you for joining us on a Monday afternoon. Hi, Ted. How are you? I'm good. So let's uh, talk about this now. First of all, people perhaps didn't know that, uh, as they say, they're back. Uh, first of all, it, I don't. I think I know the answer to this question, Phil. I don't think you were surprised that they came back and tried to protest again. Well, y- yes and no, Ted. I must say I was taken a little aback. So I live outside of Ottawa. I live right. in a village called Russell, about 30 minutes south of Ottawa. I heard some horns honking in the downtown. I figured, oh, you know, maybe there's something going on. It was actually in, it was sort of in, in solidarity with a protest in the Netherlands where Dutch farmers were protesting their governments cracked down on the use of fertilizers and things like that. So it wasn't quite what we saw in January. I, I think that's really important to point out, that it wasn't the same as we saw in January, where there's some people in there that were maybe 
I don't know, analogous to or similar to the January folks? Yep. Probably, but but the, the whole gen- sort of genesis of the protest was very different. Now, uh, police said uh, an uncooperative and large group of vehicles. You know, things have changed. Well, first of all, no, because when we go back to what happened in February, they were uncooperative then. Um, I would, I venture to say, Phil, is it fair to say that maybe Ottawa police have now learned a hard lesson in what happened and how they didn't handle things last February versus what happened on the weekend? Yes, but it's a delicate dance, Ted. I mean, protest is right under our democracy. And I've been around the horn a few times to remember actual, you know, the Tamil Tigers of Tamil Elam, a terrorist group demonstrating in the 80s and 90s on Wellington Street outside of Parliament. So I think police have to be very careful here. Um, if you're disrupting traffic or causing a nuisance, yeah, they do have powers to tow people and ticket people and close and, and, and road closures, as you pointed out. And yeah, so they probably have learned from what happened in January. Maybe some would say they acted a little bit too late in January and February. Hence, we had the three weeks sort of, I don't know, um, you know, complete morass that was downtown Ottawa. But, you know, if you're a police force or your security intelligence or you're in journalism, you learn from things in the past and you try to do better in the future. So uh, I understand that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, they did what's called a snake march with rolling closures. Uh, that's what the police uh, basically were dealing with and how they handled things Saturday. So as you say, they obviously learned their, their lesson. Uh, things were a lot calmer when it came to that than they were back in uh, January, February. Yeah, and kudos to them. Like I said, I think any any organization, especially in law enforcement, uh, things change, people change, movements change, and you want to make sure that you have the best tactics in place to deal with them. And again, keeping that balance between the right to protest, but not the right to disrupt people's lives for three weeks. That's happened in January and February. So yeah, I think uh, we should recognize Ottawa Police did a good job this time. Now, uh, what's I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was talk uh, that uh, somebody uh, defaced the National War Memorial and put a U.S. flag on that particular uh, monument uh, in uh, downtown Ottawa, which, of course, is uh, we all know what it stands for. Uh, A, have you heard that? And B, uh, what can police do about something like that, which is really, really upsetting? I had not heard that, Ted. You're the first person to tell me that. If it's true, then there's some idiot who thinks he can do or she can do whatever where he or she wants. I'm not sure where the police would step in. Obviously, you're right. The Cenotaph is a very sacred monument for Canadians who served and, and died in the in the two world wars in Korea and Afghanistan. Nobody wants to see anyone deface it. Is putting an American flag defacing it? Uh, again, I mean, I'm not in favor of it, Ted. Don't get me wrong, no. but... I, I don't want to go the far and say this is some kind of an act of a criminal act that they've done. But, you know, bottom line is common sense should prevail. Right. I mean, yes, have your protest, make your point, get out of Dodge and don't do stupid things like putting American flags on the sanitaire. That's just an idiot acting out of an idiot's you know, uh, mentality, I guess. Uh, what what concerns myself as a as a citizen of of this country is, um, of course, the two ringleaders in this event that took place in January and February. Uh, we we know that they were arrested. We know that they spent time in jail. They were given their uh, um, basically their sentence from the police uh, not to come back and not to do things. And then they are apparently rearrested again. Uh, how concerning is that? People may you know, if you will, carry the torch on what those those two individuals. Uh, are doing again i want to be careful here so i'm not a, a, a specialist in, in far-right extremism right. which is what some people call this i don't really think it goes that far but that's just my personal opinion uh, we're going to monitor it and i i'm very confident that my former colleagues at CSIS and my friends at the rcmp are monitoring these these groups and these movements and if there are people in them that are, that are going to possibly engage in criminal activity 
possibly including violence, that they'll be cracked down upon. And I, and I, I'm, I'm having every confidence they'll do that. But again, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm repeating myself. Yeah, it's a delicate dance in our country because you do have a right to protest, even if you're a moron. <laughs> and I think that we have to be really careful in saying, well, you can't do this because we don't like your viewpoints. My God, Ted, I've been here for 40 years in this area. There isn't a weekend that goes by in Ottawa without a protest by some group or another. And, and like I said, that's our right under the Constitution, under the Charter. So let's just kind of all just take a, a value. If people think value anymore, I don't know. Um, maybe have a beer on the patio and just kind of relax a little bit. People are, are aware of it. The, the organizations we trust to keep us safe are aware of it as well. Let's just not overreact and panic. It, we're, we're, it's not the time for panic just yet. Phil, just before we wrap up, do you think we're all becoming kind of um, desensitized to uh, what happened in Ottawa? And the analogy I draw, and they're two entirely different things, and this is terrible, but I think you know where I'm coming from. After the horrific shootings at the Tops store in Buffalo, we heard everybody saying, never again, and what happens, shooting after shooting after shooting, and it's almost at the point where we go, yeah, it's a sad story, ho-hum, here we go again. I'm not uh, equating the two, but are we becoming more desensitized in this country with perhaps what's happening in Ottawa? I think it's possible, Ted, and you're right. They're not, it's not a great analogy, but I understand wh- why you've done it. Yeah. Um, I, I think people, the more they see it, the more they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, oh, it's happening again kind of thing. But, you know, again, as long as it, it, there's no threat of violence, as long as people aren't being harmed, yes, it's an inconvenience. I wouldn't want to be in Ottawa when these things go on. Mm. We have to be uh, apply a measured response to this. But, yeah, I think we're all getting a little bit tired of this, just like we're tired of COVID, right? And mm. um, let's just make sure that we, we keep on top of it. And that, more importantly, the, the organizations that are there to prevent p- bad things from happening are keeping on top of it, and I'm pretty sure that they are. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa as a national security program and former CSIS analyst. Thank you for uh, taking a look at uh, what happened in Ottawa on the weekend and maybe what may happen uh, down the road as far as the security provided by uh, the police in Ottawa. Thanks for the time, Phil. Enjoy the rest of the day. My pleasure, Ted. You as well. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, today, Hockey Canada released what they're calling their Comprehensive Action Plan to address systemic issues in hockey and ensure greater safety and inclusiveness in and around Canada's game. They're say that the plan is an important step in upholding the responsibility to address toxic behaviors. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this is the Executive Director and General Counsel of LEAF, which is Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Pam Herrick joins us. Pam, first of all, good afternoon. Um, And looking at some of your Twitter uh, things, are you calmed down yet? And I'm not being flippant about this situation. Listen, I'm, I think it's all incredibly uh, upsetting. We were talking about issues that have been around in uh, men's hockey and yep. in men's amateur hockey for years. There have been issues of related to sexual violence going back uh, decades. It's pervasive. It is disturbing that uh, those who have been in leadership roles in the organization have let this persist. They've had a fund that has settled sexual uh, assault cases, and they've only come up with this purported action plan uh, when their hands been forced. So I, I, I can't put too much stock in it. 
Because I know, uh, Pam, that uh, in the OHL uh, in this part, and this was, I gee, maybe three, four years ago, at least, if not more, uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs in the OHL with our friends at the CMHA branches throughout the province did uh, a lot of uh, uh, seminars talking the Bulldogs be more than a bystander program when it comes to uh, abuse and harassment. So uh, they have been doing their part, but the issue is, as you say, is uh, Hockey Canada now feeling a heck of a lot of heat, and now they're basically coming out and trying to take this and spin this into a PR move? I mean, I, they're definitely doing that. You saw one of the uh, issues that they've committed to, or one of the actions that they've committed to in the last couple of weeks, uh, is to become a, a, a signatory to the uh, Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner, which, of course, is one of the conditions that the federal minister put on them getting their funding back from the federal government. So these are the sorts of things that they're being forced into. We want to see in hockey, we want to see leaders uh, take up this issue to acknowledge this, there's a culture problem, to give the resources, tools, uh, encouragement uh, to uh, especially young men to be able to uh, be you know, in a respectful environment, to treat women with respect and to deal head on with the pervasive issue of sexual violence. We just need the right people in leadership roles to do that. And the people who have been overseeing how we got here aren't the right ones. You know, the story came out late last week, Pam. We talked about the situation, first of all, that happened in London at the World uh, Junior Hockey Championship several years ago. Back in 2003, uh, alleged sexual assault in Halifax. And it's interesting now to uh, read and hear that a lot of the players are now starting to distance themselves. And them they're saying, we didn't know that this was going on. And I would suggest, Pam, uh, you know, men and young boys and teens and what have you, Uh, I find that laughable that these guys are saying they didn't know that this happened, whether they took part in it or not. I I think it's some, in at least some of these cases, it would certainly strain uh, credulity. The number of players who were certainly alleged to have been involved in that 2003 incident, uh, I find it difficult seeing the descriptions of the sort of culture that existed uh, at the time that, for example, Jordan Tutu wrote about in his book, um, that at the very least these folks did not uh, that they didn't know these sorts of things uh, uh, were happening with respect to these sorts of uh, group acts among among uh, among players and among uh, young women. Uh, so you know that they that they may may perhaps not have known of this specific incident. Plausible, but certainly the culture seems to have been there. You know, it's interesting. You bring up the point about Jordan Tutu's book, and I was reading some of the excerpts. Uh, um, and I'm not a lawyer, and I don't pretend that I know, but but I would suggest that what he put in that book and a specific uh, little thing uh, that he talked about, uh, the life of a hockey player, that's pretty damning evidence to be in the book and then all of a sudden to have, for example, somebody saying, well, I really didn't know what was going on. Again, it goes back to knowledge of the pervasive culture, I think, that leads to these sorts of uh, assaults taking place. It's not surprising when you have an environment like the one that is described uh, in his book, like the one that many other young men have described uh, existing in uh, junior hockey and amateur hockey. Brock McGillis, who's an advocate, uh, an LGBTQ2 advocate and former uh, professional uh, player, has spoken about the culture in the locker room of misogyny and homophobia, that these sorts of uh, alleged assaults 
uh, and violence are happening in in that culture is not surprising. So it really is the broader, I think, systemic problem that has been allowed to go on for decades that has to be tackled and it has to be tackled seriously, independently by management and people who have not been involved in letting the problem get uh, and, and, and continue to be so out of control. One of the things that uh, they talked about in this uh, action plan uh, from Hockey Canada, they're talking about implementing enhanced character screening for all high-performance players. I'm not sure what that means. How do you screen for for character? I mean, you can do all the searches that you want and talk to the individual uh, as much as you want, and yet something may still happen. So I find that one laughable. I don't know. I'm not sure what it means either. And I think this is, you know, this is part of the part of the problem. We've had a, a couple of weeks now, and this this appears to be uh, a quote unquote action plan that has been thrown together over the course of a a couple of weeks. I got no idea who has been involved in creating it, whether there's been any real expertise that has come to bear in that, and the idea that it's going to be overseen by the board of directors appointing quote unquote independent uh, experts. Uh, to oversee and administer some of this plan uh, is pretty concerning given that the board of directors is the one that was in place uh, um, when a number of these incidents, especially more recently, have happened. Well, I know earlier today on CHML News we heard about, uh, and we're not comparing the two, but uh, the Rogers brass are up getting grilled by uh, members of Parliament about what happened with Rogers. Hopefully uh, they do an in-depth study on this one, hold the people uh, at Hockey Canada responsible for this, and and maybe clean this up. Because unfortunately, Pam, I was on the air last week, and I kind of thought to myself, after the Halifax thing broke, and I mentioned, kind of musing on air, that I don't think that this is the end of it. And uh, it appears that, well, the other shoe has fallen and maybe we'll have to wait for uh, yet more information about some other distasteful cases coming up. Pam Herrick, Executive Director of LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Thank you very much for the insight and uh, we'll keep an eye out as to what happens on what is becoming a black eye for Canada's national game. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we our next guest, uh, we talked about this kind of sort of last week. Well, the announcement of some kind is coming up tomorrow morning at 9.30 uh, near City Hall. And the person that will be um, speaking at the news conference is Andrea Horvath. So my next guest, Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, joins us. Uh, by the way, Henry, first of all, thank you. Hope you had a great weekend. Oh, I did. Yes, I did. So, um, Henry, you know, I, I'm not being facetious here. Something tells me Andrea Horvath wouldn't call a news conference just to dispense advice on, you know, the price of gas or how people <laughs> should be spending their summer vacations. Uh, so is my speculation as everybody's correct? Oh, yeah, well, I would think so, and I'd be shocked if she doesn't announce that she's running for mayor of Hamilton. So let's uh, talk about that now. So, um, as we say, the news conference is tomorrow morning um, at 9.30, and CHML News will be there. Um, Andrea Horvath, uh, now, if she says she's in, so now she will run up against um, former Hamilton mayor and MP Bob Rotina, former Chamber of Commerce President Keenan Loomis, union uh, taxi driver, former taxi driver's union's head, Ejas Butts. They're also um, 
planning on, um, I don't know if anybody else is planning on uh, running in that election, but election day is October 24th. Now that happens to be Horvath's 60th birthday. Horvath, uh, right now, based on what we think will be announced tomorrow, Henry, does that automatically now make her the front runner? I would think so. I would think that, uh, yeah, that would put her at the front of the pack. I, I would think so. I have, haven't seen any surveys on this, but I, I although people, I've been getting calls that, from polling firms asking me about this, so it's been fun to get them. But I think, I think it'll put her at the front of the pack. Now, there are those that say that Horvath running, um, if, if that's the case, and we keep saying if, uh, her running and also Keenan Loomis, would this maybe open up the middle for Bob Bertina to kind of uh, come up the middle and maybe take this election? Because people don't know, uh, Bertina has never lost an election that he has run in. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think what is going to go hap- likely to happen here, though, is that uh, I, think, I think people are looking for a, a change of some type. Uh, and I don't think uh, someone who's a former mayor, and, or even a present mayor, for that matter, probably, uh, is, is, is probably people think that's time for a change from, from those type of people. And uh, so that really comes down to, I think, Loomis and, and to Andrea. Uh, and I think uh, the knock-on, of course, uh, Loomis, you know, did a wonderful job, as far as I could tell, with head of the Chamber of Commerce there. Uh, but uh, I think the the argument has about him was that he probably may not understand uh, city politics and that also the politics of getting money out of upper-level governments nearly as well as somebody who's been in there. So. Uh, I think a lot of people came to me and said, you know, I think he should have run for counselor and then run for mayor, not go for the top. And and the, and the person with a with a tremendous amount of local experience, even though she was leader of the party and up at Queens Park, but she knows where the money is in Queens Park, and so that that is very important, I think. Henry, uh, when you talk about Keenan Loomis, is it also fair to say that perhaps not enough people, the business community knows who he is? We know uh, what yeah, a great right, job he right, said, right. but. Do do people who live in Ward Four and Ward Three and um, don't follow business much do does he have a, a really harder job than anybody of, if you will, selling himself and telling people what he's all about? Yeah, I think that I think that's true. Is that uh, he? You know, there's certain jobs if you you get a lot of publicity uh, in the broad sector, and there's other jobs you do very very well, and you get a slice of the community, but you don't get. Uh, Everybody, and that's why I think uh, a number of people who were actually were are quite positive about him said, "Now, if he was a counselor and a very good counselor for for four years, which they would expect it, then he would have been a much better chance to run his campaign. You know, campaign for mayor. So, and of course, what Andrea does is she has, you know, she's been in the limelight for a long time, and." Uh, so a lot of pe- people know who she is. And people uh, forget, of course, that she, uh, well, we, we talked about her being the leader of, of the provincial NDP, that she was a ward councillor several years ago. She was uh, three times elected to council in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And then, um, as we say, she was there as well. So it's not like it, I understand getting out of City Hall and not being there for 10 or 15 years. That's one thing. But she does, as you say, she does know where the money goes and she does know how to play the civic political game that's right i think she she's very good i mean she knows how what what it takes to run a good city government you're right because of the experience she had on council before she came and she knows where you know who to who to talk to and who to you know to uh, 
where who has money that for projects that we need and 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 I think uh, certainly you know there's a lot of things that a lot we need money for and uh, and I think that will be her top priority and I think. Uh, People will tend to recognize that. Henry, what should uh, people uh, that perhaps um, don't uh, don't lean to the left, uh, they, they, they're not NDP supporters, they are progressive conservative supporters. Uh, is there a fear of Hamilton leaning even further left if Andrea Horvath does become mayor of Hamilton? Well, I think she'll go to the, I mean, I think she'll be a consensus mayor. Uh, you know, I think she'll be in the middle and I think I think she'll work well with the business business community and and even for people who are progressive conservatives. I, I mean, because I I think she's basically going to make the argument that she is going to be Hamilton first, and she's always said this, you know, Hamilton first. And uh, you know, she loves the city and she wants to bring everybody together and she wants to make sure everybody is taken care of. And I think I think that's going to come through. And I think I think a lot of people recognize that. Now let's uh, talk about, uh, as we say, the election day is on October 24th, and I think we talked about this last week, Henry. Hopefully that revitalizes and invigorates uh, the election campaign and uh, maybe uh, people's uh, appetite to go to the polling station, because we know in this city uh, the turnout for uh, um, a local civic election is woefully low. Yeah, well, I think she's going to certainly help the turnout. I mean, having having a big name like that, as you know, people are going to come out. And even if people come out who don't like her, well, she'll draw them as well, to bring them out as well. So I think, you know, everything being you know looked at, I think I think there will be a big turnout, and she's going to contribute to that. And before we wrap up, Henry, um, let's uh, take this one step further. If Andrea Horvath announces tomorrow that she is in to run uh, for mayor of Hamilton, if she wins, that means that Hamilton, Burlington, and Mississauga will all be led by women mayors. I can't remember the last time that's happened. Yeah, it's uh, it, we're, we're having an era more and more of we're having uh, women leaders. There's no question about it. And so, yeah, I've never, I can't remember that, Yeah. Henry Jasek, uh, professor of politics at uh, McMaster University. Um, never dull time. We'll see what the announcement is tomorrow morning at 9.30, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about that uh, down the road. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us. Okay, my pleasure, and we're going to have an interesting year, that's for sure. That's for sure we are. The election campaign, if she announces that she's in, and we keep saying if because we don't know officially, uh, if she announces that she's in, it just got a whole lot more interesting. It will be in. I always watch political debates. And sometimes, you know, I'm probably the only one of the few people that I talk to that uh, it'll be very interesting to see the debate between Andrea Horvath and, say, Bob Rutina. That would be very interesting. A historic Monday afternoon because earlier today, tears were flowing, emotions ran raw in Musquachese, Alberta today, where speaking in his native Spanish, the Pope apologized for the Roman Catholic Church's role in running Canada's residential schools. From this place associated with painful memories, I would like to begin what I consider a penitential pilgrimage. I have come to your native lands to tell you in person of my sorrow to implore God's forgiveness healing 
and reconciliation. Before he was greeted by drumming and a procession of chiefs, he held his face as he was taken in his wheelchair through a cemetery where some of the children who died at the former residential school may be buried. Very emotional day today, and talking uh, about this for the next few minutes is our next guest, Ken Coates, the professor of Canada Research in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. Ken, first of all, thank you for joining us. Quite a historic day today. A very historic day, and I hope all Canadians realize that it is, in fact, monumental in many, many important ways. Now, first of all, were you, um, we kind of knew that it was coming, but were you surprised by what the Pope said today, or maybe surprised by what he didn't say? A bit surprised by what he didn't say. Um, So, you know, he clearly feels uh, deep pain. There's no question of his personal shame. There's no question of his sense of sort of uh, collective guilt on behalf of the Church, and um, he was quite careful to focus on the individuals who did bad bad things. There's an awful lot of Aboriginal folks and a lot of other people who are hoping that he would start an international dialogue about the fundamental sort of elements of colonization and 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 the cultural superiority and religious domination that actually create the atmosphere that made residential schools possible. So he spent most of his time focusing on an evil institution, and, and he, he could see that he imagined and understood the impact it had on children and had an impact it had on, on families and multi, multiple generations. There's no question that he got that part of the message. But the larger part, which says the Church was part of sort of imposing itself on Indigenous peoples around the world, um, let's hope we've got more stories or more comments from him coming in the future. You know, it's interesting, too, Ken, because one of the uh, reporters on Twitter, and this is kind of uh, speaks to uh, how deep the emotions go on this, uh, kind of a vitriolic comment. Um, somebody on Twitter wrote, the papal apology won't fix the inequities Indigenous people continue to face within Canadian institutions. Um, she said, I hope, this person said, I hope the Pope can have a cup of tap water while he's there and drink that. So that's that's nasty, but I think I understand the tone of that particular comment. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you focused on that. And let me use one example. Um, the government of Canada and the government of Alberta spent a lot of money prettying out everything up that the Pope is going to see. So as the Pope travels, they're not going to see horrible buildings. He's not going to see rundown communities. He's not going to drink the water on you know, water reserves that have a, have a water advisory. And so this is a phenomenon that goes back to Russia, where they used to have what are called Potemkin villages, where as the, the Russian senior official goes through town, they put up false fronts and painted everything so everything looked fine. Mm-hmm. And he drives through and he goes, wow, what a great village this is. Well, in fact, what a lot of First Nations were saying is, come and walk with us. You know, get, you know, unfortunately the Pope can't do that because he's in a wheelchair, but, right. but get down to our community level, see the houses we live in, see the poverty we deal with, see the appalling water conditions and the unpaved roads, and the governments have made it really clear they're not going to let that happen. And, and it's really unfortunate, because for a lot of First Nations people, this event is drawing the, the attentions of the entire world to look at their circumstance, and they really want the, the Pope, and every, through the Pope's eyes, want the rest of the world to see what they're, what they're living with. And what they're living with is a consequence of hundreds of years of sort of you know, European expansion. So we, a missed opportunity to be sure, but don't underestimate the importance of having, having God's representative on earth for the Roman Catholic Church come and sit down with uh, Indigenous elders and, and Indigenous Catholics 
and and talk to them and pray with them. That is a, a powerful, powerful phenomenon. One of the things that uh, the person that did make that comment also said, um, more than five decades have passed since he was in that residential school, and he is still dealing with the trauma today. And I don't know how, and I've, we haven't heard anything about money, obviously, and probably won't, but I don't know how, you, how much money money won't be able to wash away what this particular individual is is feeling that's true you know and remember remember the money's been there yep we had a multi-billion dollar settlement from the government of canada we had promises from the other churches the catholic church has not done well in fulfilling its financial promises in fact they engaged in some questionable accounting to try to claim they'd actually given a whole bunch more but it's, it's not so much the money. I think you'll find with a lot of First Nations people, money money is necessary. There's no question of that. But it's more the, the, the accepting collective responsibility on behalf of all of the churches and actually taking big steps to learn from the past and do things better. And, and I think there's an awful lot to be done with a hug. There's a lot to be done with a prayer. There's a lot to be done by holding communion. And, and those things are very significant in the lives of individuals and communities. Um, I'm just nervous that at the end it'll be a disappointing uh, experience overall. A lot of uh, First Nations people are hoping for concrete promises, uh, access to records, for example, financial compensation, you know, uh, turning over big chunks of church property. The church has enormous and valuable uh, real estate assets in major cities that would actually be maybe passed on to the church and give them a foundation, passed on to Indigenous people and give them a foundation for building sort of a a more exciting and dynamic future for themselves. So we're still waiting for that kind of a thing. I don't think we're going to see it on this trip, but you are hoping that this becomes the start of the Catholic Church's journey with Indigenous people and not the end of it. Well, that was my next point, Ken, just before we, we wrap up, is uh, the next step, um, and you kind of touched on it, that you're kind of hoping that uh, that this is the first step um, that the Church has uh, taken toward a reconciliation. Um, one of the survivors said it's been very emotional, the next step is to heal, but it will take time, and unfortunately, Ken, some of these people who are, are there, um, who have been there, uh, may not have that much time they are getting up in age, so I'm, I'm not sure um, if that'll be the case uh, for those people. I think for those people, there's, you know, you're 90 years old and you went through the experience and whatever. There must be, and they deservedly so, some, some profound um, sort of satisfaction in the fact that after many, many years, you bought the Catholic Church to this point. This is not something they asked about last week. This, this whole business has been in, under development since the 1980s. Lots of efforts to get the church to apologize and, and, and do something. So if you're 90 years old, you probably spent half of 40 years fighting to have this happen. So it's happened. You've set the foundation for new relationships in the future. I think the challenge that's most important is that not just the Pope now, the whole Catholic Church in Canada has to take demonstrable steps in the coming months and the coming years to show that the new spirit of reconciliation has been absorbed. It's not just about saying you're sorry. You know, I, I'm saying sorry is the kind of thing that 12-year-olds do and 8-year-olds do. Mommy, I'm sorry I broke the TV set. Mm. You know, that doesn't solve the problem. 
What you actually need is people to sort of to say, and we're going to come and walk with you until you are healed, and it's our responsibility to help you get there. That's the part we need now. I hope we see it. Ken Coates, Professor of Canada Research and Regional Innovation uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. Thanks for the update. We'll keep an eye on the rest of what happens with the Pope uh, with his visit to Canada. Thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Always welcome. Bye now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Stories that uh, you may not have heard today or we didn't get a chance to run them for whatever reason because it's been a very busy day. Some sad news. It was just a legendary character and characters. Brooklyn-born actor Paul Sorvino died today. Dealt with health challenges over the years and passed from natural causes with his wife, Dee Dee Sorvino, by his side. Things have changed today, James. Paul Sorvino, who rose to prominence in productions like that championship season, had a career that spanned over five decades, with roles in stage, television, and film, including mobster Paul Cicero and Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Don't make a jerk out of me. Just don't do it. He also turned to the other side of the law in the early 90s on Law and Order. As Sergeant Phil Serretta. They don't sell hot guns at Brooks Brothers. I am telling His daughter Mira Servino won the Oscar in 1996 for Mighty Aphrodite, accepting with her father in attendance. When you give me this award, you honor my father, Paul Servino, who has taught me everything I know about acting. I love you very much, Dad. <laughs> Matt Wolf, ABC News. Classic, Polly. Classic, classic character. And a great movie. Also sad news, British actor David Warner has died from a cancer-related illness at the age of 80. None of these stewards have seen him. David Warner was an acclaimed Shakespearean stage actor who mostly gave it up because he had stage fright. He was known for playing the valet Spicer Lovejoy in Titanic, Jack the Ripper in the film Time After Time, and more recently, naval officer Admiral Boom in Mary Poppins Returns. Why have I let the supreme being keep me here in the fortress of ultimate darkness? Warner also portrayed the evil genius in the movie Time Bandits and Dillinger in the 1982 version of Tron. Warner had roles in two Star Trek films and in Star Trek the next generation each time is a member of a different species i'm margie zaraletta speaking of margie she has one more story for us and one more death uh this goes back for a, a lot of us we remember a lot of you weren't even born but maybe you've heard about it the hollywood director and producer who helped create the monkeys tv show has died at 89 According to Bob Rafelson, the idea for the monkeys predated the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night, but it hit TV at the right moment in 1966. Rafelson won an Emmy for co-creating the monkeys. He also directed their cult film Head, which featured Jack Nicholson as a budding actor. I'm getting away from things that get bad. Rafelson and Nicholson worked together on the film's Five Easy Pieces and The King of Marvin Gardens. Rafelson also produced the movies The Last Picture Show and Easy Rider. I'm Margie Zaraleta. You know how, uh, maybe not so much now, but uh, maybe people of our generation had baseball cards. You know, you kept them in your room, you kept them under the bed, or kept them in the basement, and then your mom threw them out, and then you got mad because there were baseball cards, not to mention the bubble gum that you got with it, which is a really neat thing. Well, the reason we say this is because a 70-year-old Mickey Mantle baseball card 
could break records when it hits the auction block next month. The 1952 Topps Mantle rookie card that'll be auctioned is regarded as one of just a handful in near-perfect condition. It's estimated the card could fetch more than $10 million. The record is $6.6 million for perhaps the industry's most legendary card, the 1909 Hannes Wagner that sold a year ago. Next month's auction will bring a hefty profit for Anthony Giordano, who bought the mantle for $50,000 three decades ago. He says his family's enjoyed showing off the card, and it's time to give the Mick a new home. I'm Sagar Magani. He also, Sagar Magani, has one more report for us today, said the president is making progress in his fight against COVID. Dr. Kevin O'Connor says four days after testing positive, the president's symptoms have almost completely resolved. He reports some nasal congestion and hoarseness, but says the president's vital signs remain absolutely normal. O'Connor says the president's still taking an antiviral and will keep isolating in the White House residence per CDC guidelines. He notes the president's very specifically conscientious to protect any staff who have to be in proximity. Sagar Magani, Washington. Well, the story we heard earlier today on CHML, I'm sure, well, not I'm sure, I know you will be hearing it all day tomorrow. Uh, A media event has been called for 9.30 tomorrow morning near Hamilton City Hall. Andrea Horvath may be on the verge of ending weeks of speculation. Will she make an announcement that she's running to become the mayor of the city of Hamilton? Let's put it this way. When she sent out the release saying there's a media um, a media advisory, it wasn't on any type of NDP Twitter or social media or NDP email. So the kind of, I would suggest to you, kind of lead you in that direction that uh, she is uh, throwing her proverbial hat into the ring. She stepped down following the election on June 2nd. If she announces that she's in, she'll be running against former mayor and liberal MP Bob Bertina former Hamilton Chamber of Commerce President Keenan Loomis and Ejas Butt. They all have announced that they're in. And, of course, Fred Eisenberger has announced that he will not run on October the 24th. So we'll keep an eye on that one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And uh, that is it for me. They brought me back in because of vacation. I've enjoyed this immensely. So semi-retirement, it's kind of what I do. Come in, fill the gaps, go home, (laughs) come back when they call me. So thanks to Will Erskine, who puts the show together, um, sometimes under a lot of pressure with deadlines and stuff. Will does a great job. Thank you to him. Thank you to Will Weber, who uh, technically produces this program. And thanks to you. Had some nice comments over the last week about being back on the air. But Scott is back tomorrow, so I'll be back somewhere, somehow. I don't know when, but I'll be back. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.